journeying to, to areas to plant churches or to encourage churches, it is still a mission trip in the sense that everything Paul does is mission-oriented. It's just he doesn't have the freedom to travel where he wants to travel necessarily. See, from Acts chapter 21, shortly after verse 17, through the end of the chapter, Paul is not free. He's in custody in some way, shape, or form. But the entire time, he's still sharing the gospel. It's an amazing thing because he's not in the best of environments. He's not in the best of conditions. He's not exposed to the, the, the best of places. But yet he's using every moment for the glory of God in some capacity. It's about recognizing opportunities. The entirety of these last seven and a half chapters of Acts is Paul showing us that every circumstance, every situation will present some sort of opportunity for you if you're looking for it. And so I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we examine these final chapters and these final events because we do have this instruction from Paul himself in um, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. He says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. That's not just something Paul wrote or said. It's something he lived. And it's illustrated well in these last seven and a half chapters. Now what I'm going to do tonight, because this is such a large section of Scripture, is, is I'm not going to try to cover every little detail and, and, and break down every little event. I'm going to do more of a summary through most of it. And then with each major scenario that we come to, I want to uh, bring out one major point. And when I say each major scenario, I'm going to uh, base our study on three, three scenes. Because three major locations that Paul finds himself in these last seven and a half chapters. First is Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem for an extended period of time. There are major events that unfold there. So we're gonna, we'll summarize that and then we'll talk about one major thing we can take from his time in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, he's going to be transported to Caesarea. He's going to spend a couple of years there. We'll draw out one major point that we can take away from his time in Caesarea. And then the third act is his time at sea in the voyage to Rome. And we'll draw out one major application we can take from that. But really, the big theme of tonight is how Paul seized opportunities. And you'll see that as we journey through our, our study this evening. And just so you know, you have a reward at the end of this class. Did you know that? At the end of class tonight, they got snow cones waiting on you outside. Just want you to know that if you hang with me, you can get a snow cone. But, except for those of you who are online, I'm sorry, can't do anything about that. So if you will, open your Bibles, Acts chapter 21 to verse 17. Now because this is such a large section, I'm not going to read the text as I would normally. We're just going to uh, work our way through it, and I'll try to direct you to the passages that are being emphasized and read some uh, to the best of my ability. But as we get to this point in time, Paul is making an intentional trip to Jerusalem. And he is warned before he gets there that, that things aren't going to go well. That, his, that he's in, there is some danger in making this trip. So you get to Acts chapter 21, and you see that he finally arrives in, in Jerusalem. And what's the first thing he does? Verse 17, what's the first thing he does? He goes and meets with the church in Jerusalem. He meets particularly with James and the elders of the church. You know what this reminds me of? Acts chapter 15. He made a trip to Jerusalem on behalf of the church in Antioch as a representative of that congregation. And you know who he met with? James and the elders of the church and also the apostles. And it's on that trip he does the very same thing he's going to do at the outset of this visit. He's going to give a report of the work among the Gentiles. He did that in Acts chapter 15, and he's doing that here. And the overwhelming response to his report about how the kingdom has spread among the Gentiles is glowing, and God is being praised. It's this wonderful moment. Paul is coming back from a campaign and saying, here's how the Lord is working around the globe, and everyone's ecstatic, everyone's praising God. It's a glorious moment. But then there's a little bit of a twist to it. There's an issue that they need to deal with. Now back in Acts chapter 15, they had an issue they had to deal with when Paul met with the church then. It was the issue of Gentile circumcision. 
And what had happened is some members of the Jerusalem congregation had gone up to the Antioch congregation and were telling the Gentile Christians there that in order for them to really be Christians, they've got to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses, the entirety of the law of Moses, essentially. Well, on behalf of Antioch, the congregation there and the Christians there, Paul went to Jerusalem representing them, met with the elders of the church there, met with the apostles to to figure out this uh, doctrinal dispute that existed, if you will. And the, the overwhelming decision was, we don't, we're, the Gentiles are not to be forced to obey the law of Moses. They're not to be forced to be circumcised. Here's what, they, they had a list of four or five things that they did need to abstain from. Eating meat, food sacrifice, eating food sacrifice to idols, uh, sexual immorality, and, uh, and, and, and some other things. They had a list, they wrote a letter, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to compile their list. They sent it back with, with some uh, representatives from the church in Jerusalem to confirm what was written in that statement. And guess what? Here we are in Acts chapter 21, and they reaffirm their decision from Acts 15. Now that matters in the sense that ultimately what they're saying is, we're, we're, this issue has been dealt with. We're not going back to this issue. This issue is no longer an issue. We dealt with that. We're done. But there is still a Jewish-Gentile issue floating out there. There is still an issue affecting the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. It's not the same one it was. It's a new one. And it all centers on Paul. More importantly, it centers on a misunderstanding of Paul. If you look at verse 25 of Acts 21, it says, Oh, no, I'm uh, sorry. Look at verse 21 of Acts 21. Some Jewish Christians had heard that Paul was teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. In, in, in other words, Paul was accused of leading Jewish Christians to abandon their Jewish way of life. Or uh, more specifically, he's being accused of telling Jewish people to defect from Judaism. That, that's really what he's being accused of. And the Greek term employed here to describe Paul's accused activity is the term used to denote apostasy. They're claiming that he is leading people into apostasy. Jewish apostasy. See, their issue with these people who are throwing these accusations isn't what Paul is telling Gentiles to do or not to do. That was the issue back in Acts 15 when it came to circumcision. They took issue with Paul teaching that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised. Now their issue is with what Paul does or does not say Jewish Christians have to do. It's a kind of a reversal of what's going on. Now the accusations against Paul, they, they were incorrect, but they may have been appropriately raised as a misunderstanding of his teaching. Maybe what's happened here is some Jewish Christians have been exposed to the teachings of Paul and they just don't understand what he's actually teaching. I want you to think, for instance, uh, Paul will write in Romans and in 1 Corinthians about weak believers and strong believers. And he seems to be in those passages, Romans chapter 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and, verse, and chapter 9. He makes the point that the, the, the weak, and the, there are weak Christians, there are strong Christians. And he delineates them along lines that can be interpreted as saying that weak Christians are scrupulous about matters of, of what they eat, what they drink, and of, of Jewish rituals. And the stronger Christians are the ones who, who don't, Aren't, aren't as scrupulous about those things. Now, if you're a Jewish Christian and you read that, you may feel like he's calling you the weaker Christian because you still obey what you, were grow, what you grew up understanding to be God's expectations. How would you feel if I came in here and declared that the weak Christians are Georgia fans and the strong Christians are non-Georgia fans? Okay, Jim, settle down. <laughs> you know, if we had a delineation and, and accused some of you of being weak Christians, 
you're not really going to appreciate that. And so it's a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of what Paul's saying, but it could have been understood that way because you've got to remember, they don't have video recordings of Paul's sermons. They don't have necessarily extra copies of his letters floating around that everybody can have access to. So somebody could hear it and not hear it correctly and go back and say, hey, I heard Paul teaching this. I don't think that was right. And it may just be that they didn't have the clarity that they would have had if they could go back and listen to it again. I've been misunderstood before in sermons I've preached. And thankfully, at times, I could go back and pull up a recording or an audio recording or a video recording and write down manuscript form what I actually said and can offer clarity. Paul didn't necessarily have that luxury. So there could have been an easy uh, misrepresentation of what he had said. When you look at what Paul does communicate, one, one of the best passages that, Paul ever, that, that I think Paul ever wrote was 1 Corinthians 9, where he talks about, I've become all things to all men, so that my, by all means I might save some. He's saying, I, I'm, willing, I'm willing to, to uh, operate in Jewish culture the way that I need to when I'm with them. And I'm willing to operate in Gentile culture the way I need to when I'm with them. I will never compromise the Word of God. I will never compromise the, the ethical, moral standards that He holds me to. But I will operate within the parameters that I can to, to be sensitive to that particular population. One of the best ways you can see how Paul would do this is in two sermons that he presents. The first is presented in Acts chapter 13. It was a sermon preached to Christians in um, Antioch, Pisidia, to, not to Christians, I'm sorry, to Jews in Antioch, Pisidia. And he goes there, and on their Sabbath, on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue, and he preached on their turf, in their place, the synagogue. And he began his message by acknowledging their religious heritage. His first words in that sermon in Acts chapter 13 were, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. He spoke to them with respect. You who fear God. He doesn't demean them or start off accusing them of their, their failure to accept the Messiah. He doesn't start there. He starts with respect of what they do believe. He goes on to say, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And from there, from there he provided a brief overview of Israelite history, which was certain to gain several versions of a, of a Jewish amen. So when he approaches the Jews, he goes to their turf. He communicates in their language. One thing you'll notice in, in the, the next chapter, chapter 22, when he wants to speak to a crowd in Jerusalem, he doesn't speak Greek. He turns to Hebrew. He speaks their language. He speaks on their turf. He recites their history. He even quotes from their authors. In that sermon in Acts chapter 13 in the synagogue of Antioch, Pisidia, he presents five different quotations from the Old Testament. Five quotations based on seven different passages, including the book of 1 Samuel, Psalms, Isaiah, Habakkuk. I'm not going to take the time to go footnote all these quotes, but he's quoting from their book. Paul is sensitive to the cultural interaction there, and he utilizes it for the glory of God. If you were to go from Acts 13, from that sermon, and go four chapters uh, deeper into Acts, to Acts chapter 17. He's not speaking to a Jewish audience there. He goes to the Areopagus, that place where great philosophers and thinkers of Greek culture would gather to share ideas. He's in Athens. He doesn't go to the synagogue in Athens. No, he goes to the community gathering spot of the great minds, the Areopagus. He goes to their turf. And when he's there, he doesn't start giving Jewish history. No. He begins his message differently. But he does the same thing. He respects them for who they are. 
He starts off that sermon in Acts chapter 17 saying, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and he goes on to launch into his sermon. But how respectful. Hey, you guys are all wrong, is what he's going to say. You've got the wrong God. You're doing this all wrong. But he doesn't start there. He starts with, hey, I can tell that you are very religious. You care about religion. Let me start with you there. He is very conscious of the culture he's talking to, and he uses something from that culture to connect with them. He wasn't derogatory. He wasn't making fun of them. He wasn't demeaning them. He commended them for their religious fervor. But as the sermon goes, he corrected them on their religious direction. And then you know what he does in that same sermon in Athens? He quotes from two Greek authors. He doesn't quote a single passage from the Old Testament. He doesn't use the, the, the source of Scripture that he used in front of the, the Jews. He uses two Greek authors. You can see it in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. He has one line that says, In him we live and move and have our being. That likely came from a guy named Epimenides of Crete. And then there's a line also that he quotes that says, For we are indeed his offspring. That likely came from a guy named Aratus in a poem wrote, called Phanomenia. I don't know either of those works, but they were well-known Greek works of the day. They were literary poets of that day, of that culture. He used their writings to make his point. All I'm saying is, Paul was always conscious culture. He never compromised the gospel and never compromised his morals. But he would adjust to the culture he was in to connect with that audience to share the gospel. Now you're probably wondering, why did I just go on that rant? Why did I spend all that time? Well, it's because I've got to eat up a lot of time. No, the reason I went on that rant is because after Paul finds out there's this issue of them questioning his teachings, he's going to be asked to do something that, address, that has to do with cultural sensitivity. Go back to Acts chapter 21 if you left there. And I want you to notice particularly what James and the elders of the church there ask him to do. They suggest to Paul that he purify himself and that he pay the expenses of four men who had taken a vow and needed to complete their period of purification. Now, these four men likely took what's called a Nazarite vow. You can read about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And at the end of their Nazarite vow, to fulfill it, they're supposed to go make some particular offerings at the temple. And it's quite possible these four men did not have the funds or the resources to pay for their offerings. That might be why the church in Jerusalem is aware of their need. They, they likely are Christians who are fulfilling this vow, Jewish Christians who are fulfilling this vow, and they need some assistance in the process. And so they're asking Paul, in part, to do something that was a benevolent act, a charitable act that would demonstrate his, um, his uh, relationship with Jewish Christians. But they're also asking him to purify himself. This request of him purifying himself isn't necessarily because he sinned. They're asking him more than likely to purify himself because he just returned from Gentile territory. If you were to go look at the book of Numbers, uh, no, not, uh, chapter 19, particularly verses 11, 12, and 13, there is precedent. There's precedent for the tradition among Jewish people for if you expose yourself to Jewish lands, Jewish homes, Jewish territory, you got to purify yourself before you enter the sacred temple. And so they're probably asking Paul to go complete his purification so that when he enters the temple to assist these four men, nobody can uh, accuse him of anything. They're essentially asking him to do some things in keeping with Jewish law so that it would demonstrate that he's not opposed to Jewish law, to Mosaic law. See, by completing these actions, the hope is that the remarks made that Paul has taught against the law will ultimately be refuted. In some, one author said, what we see here is Paul being asked to act with cultural sensitivity to the Jewish context he now finds himself in without compromising the gospel. And he is quite willing to do so for the sake of unity it may create. Think about this. Paul's doing this 
for the sake of Christian unity. He's got accusations against him that he's anti-Jewish Christians, even though he, he himself is one. And now he's going to go do something to help prove that he's not that way. Paul has always been about finding that, that unity that can exist between two very culturally distinct bodies of believers, the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And he's willing to do this for the sake of that kind of unity. Some authors are actually a little bit critical about this suggestion made by the elders of the church in Jerusalem that it's kind of unfair to Paul. I don't necessarily agree with them. I think they're looking out for the best interest of the believers under their oversight and how Paul can contribute to that. And I think Paul is demonstrating to us something he taught regularly in his own letters. What he taught about being peacemakers. There's a passage, particularly uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. I think it's a more challenging passage than we give it credit. It may be one of the more difficult commands in the New Testament to obey than we realize. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now I want you to think about one particular phrase in that passage. So far as it depends on you. When Paul wrote those words, he's ultimately giving ownership of peacemaking, of unity, of mutual edification. He's putting ownership on you and me. He's ultimately saying, don't depend on the other person to be the one that produces peace. So far it depends on you make peace. And think about how this plays off of Jesus' own teaching. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are offering your sacrifice at the temple and you realize somebody has something against you, guess what? Stop the offering, go make things right. Then you can go over to Matthew chapter 18. If you remember that somebody offended you, if, if, if somebody has sinned against you, go and tell them their fault. If you're the offended or the offender, Jesus says it's your responsibility to reconcile. What Paul's ultimately saying is the same thing. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. And Paul is demonstrating that right here. Was it necessary for Paul to purify himself at the temple that day? Was he actually unclean because he had been in Gentile territory? No. But was it going to contribute to peace and reconciliation? Possibly. It didn't, but we'll get to that in a minute. Was he really, was it really necessary for him to go pay for these other guys to finish their vows? No. But it was an act of generosity, benevolence, and charity that would show that he cares about the Jewish Christian as much as he cares about the Gentile Christian. What Paul is doing here is fulfilling his own directions of being a peacemaker, of being a unity maker, of being someone who's going to build up others. And unfortunately, they did not anticipate. Except for through the prophecy that came earlier. Just how the crowds would react. But we have to remember, I'm not so sure it's the Jewish Christians that are leading the charge against Paul and what happens next, as much as it is just the Jewish people. Because when Paul goes to the temple with these men... They fulfill everything they're supposed to do. You do have to remember, and I've talked about this often in sermons, how the Jewish temple was constructed with these different courtyards, these different layers that based on external circumstances dictated how close you could get to the temple proper. And so the large court on the outside of the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. And anyone could go into that section. That's the section in which Jesus found all those uh, sellers of goods and the animals and the money changers and drove them out because they had set up shop in this area that everybody could go. But inside that, you then had uh, a gated area that was called the Court of the Women. And guess what? A Jewish person of any gender could go into that section. But if you were a Gentile, if you were not Jewish, you could not go into that section. They have even found archaeological evidence, a, a sign engraved with a message 
warning Gentiles that if you go past this sign, you will be killed. Now that's the Kyle Rye version. It was said a little differently than that. But this, they have found in, Jew, in the ruins of Jerusalem signage that used to be posted saying, step across this line and you will, kill, you will be killed. That's how serious they took it. What happened is that when Paul went to Jerusalem, he didn't go alone. Actually, if you pay attention to Acts chapter 17, verse, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 21, verse 17, it's a we passage in Acts. Do you notice that? We went down to Jerusalem or something to that effect. What does that traditionally mean? It means that the author of Acts is with Paul. Anybody know who the author of Acts is? I hope so. Luke. Luke is with Paul for large portions of the second half of the book. And he went to Jerusalem with Paul, accompanying him, and there, he's not the only one. There, Paul just came from Ephesus. I, I think uh, there probably was a, a, Mike talked about that a good bit when he met with the elders. He didn't actually go into Ephesus, but he came from that region. He had somebody accompanying him from Ephesus, a Christian named Trophimus. Trophimus was not Jewish, though. He was a Gentile Christian. And some of Paul's opponents had seen him in Jerusalem with Trophimus. So they had seen Paul, with a Gentile Christian, just walking the streets of Jerusalem. Maybe they saw him at a coffee shop. I don't know. But, granted, I do know that there's no coffee shops back then, probably. But it's fun to say it. Like sitting at a Starbucks, that'd be funny. Anyway, he's in town, walking through the streets with a Greek or a Gentile Christian. And you know what they did? Well, later we saw Paul in the temple. Guess what? He must have taken that Gentile into the part of the temple he must not have taken him in. They just jumped to a big old conclusion. And so they come to that conclusion and use that to attack Paul. They used that line of reasoning, which was completely flawed and had gaps in it, to go capture Paul and start beating him. In fact, you'll read about this if you start um, in verse 20, uh, 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They had no basis for that. They just came to a conclusion. Because they had previously seen, as verse 29 says, Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Supposed that he brought him into the temple. Then all the city, verse 30, all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. This became such an ordeal that the, uh, the, the captain of the temple guard went out there and closed off the temple from anybody else entering that section, that section, the court of the women. They closed it off because it was such a big deal. And then look at what they started doing. Verse 31, And as they were seeking to kill him, they weren't just kicking him out. They weren't just trying to teach him a message. They were ready to execute him on the spot. It was, this was a lynching. I want to admit that that was poor terminology right there. That was a poor analogy, and I apologize for that. Moving on through our text, verse 33. Then the tribune came up. This is the leader of the Roman garrison there, which was connected to the temple. Listen, they have so many problems there that they have a fortress connected to the temple grounds. And when they saw this uproar, the soldiers came running out. And the, 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 the man in charge can't even find out what happened. The man in charge cannot even find out what Paul is being accused of because everybody's in such a commotion. But he knows this. I'm going to arrest that guy. Puts chains on Paul, escorts him out of the temple area. That's when Paul has an opportunity uh, to speak to the crowds and it's the second time we get to hear his conversion account. 
I'm not going to spend much time there. Uh, I'm going to keep us rolling uh, purposefully so we can get through the other seven chapters because (laughs) I've only covered half a chapter at this point. But Paul gets to present his, his story, his, his testimony, if you will. He gets, to, uh, t- he gets to address his conversion and his experience on the road to Damascus. And it just stirs him up a little bit more because he starts talking about he, he was sent to the Gentiles. And that they can't stand. He goes inside and they're about to flog him. They're about to scourge him like they did Jesus. And that's when he... Uh, speaks of his citizenship for the first time, and now the guy in charge is a little bit worried because he should have never put chains on Paul to begin with. The story goes on that Paul's going to be spending some time in custody here, and he's never going to come out of it in the book of Acts. The way it plays out from this point forward is that Paul is going to be sent, or he's going to the next morning be sent to the Sanhedrin to stand trial. Paul is so intelligent. I do love this one thing about Paul. He's sitting in here with all these leaders of the Jews, and he's like, hey, you know what? Some of them are Sadducees. Some of them are Pharisees. All I got to do is pit them against one another. It's like walking into Congress and going, oh, we got some Democrats. We got some Republicans. What can I say to make them mad at each other instead of me? That's exactly what he does. And he goes in there and he makes a reference to the fact that he's, he's, been, he's uh, in trouble because of his belief in the resurrection, which is something the Sadducees did not believe in. And a fight breaks out between those two parties. And they have to get him out of there. He didn't even have a trial because he was able to pit the two parties against one another. He was brilliant. I would have loved, I would have loved to sit down with Paul and have a conversation but I know this, I'd walk away from that conversation feeling this big if, when it comes to intelligence. I, not that he would have been arrogant or prideful or mean. I would have just been amazed at his intelligence. So Paul's um, trial doesn't work out too well. He's taken back into custody. He has, a, I think it's a nephew that comes along and informs him that he's overheard there is a price on Paul's head that there is an ambush waiting for him that 40 guys had made a vow to kill him when he's transported back to the Sanhedrin again. And Paul sends that nephew to talk to uh, the man in charge there. So a plan is made to get Paul out of town in the middle of the night. Send him up to Caesarea. Now here's the reason. Uh, Kevin, will you go ahead and pull up the map because I haven't referenced it yet. You can see on this map on the left, the right side of the screen, you can see Judea, Jerusalem right above that. And then if you go uh, just north of Judea, you're going to come to Caesarea Maritima. That is where he's going to be sent to initially because that's the governor's headquarters. That's where the highest ranking person in Judea from the Roman government would reside. And so they're sending Paul there because that's the safest place for him to go in, in the meantime. Because if he stays in Jerusalem, he's going to get killed by a mob. But they send him up here. He's going to be imprisoned there, awaiting to meet with the uh, governor, if you will. And at this time, the governor is a guy named Felix. And Felix receives Paul, but awaits to do anything about him until his accusers show up. He wants that Sanhedrin to come back up, to come up there and plead their case before him in regards to Paul. Because Paul's a Roman citizen. That means Paul gets a fair trial. And if you're not a Roman citizen, like Jesus, you don't get a fair trial. But Paul's going to get a fair trial to some degree. So Felix, in Acts chapter 24, we've skipped ahead a good little bit here. Felix listened to Paul's case, but he refused to make a judicial decision immediately in part because the accusations against Paul were not deserving of the death penalty according to Roman law. So he placed Paul under house arrest. And we're told in Acts chapter 24, verses 23 through 26, that he kept Paul in house arrest, would have Paul come out and visit with him from time to time, but he kept him there because he kept thinking, well, Paul's going to pay me to get out of this. See, corruption in government's been around a lot longer than the United States has. This guy wants to get paid off. But Paul's not going to pay him off. You know why? 
Because God's already told Paul what Paul's next move is. Paul's next move is to preach the gospel in Rome. And he's got an expense-paid trip to get there. All he has to do is appeal to Caesar. And so this whole time, think about this, this whole time, Paul could get out of jail. In fact, Felix will admit that later. But Paul doesn't want to get out of jail. Paul wants to stand before the mightiest man in the world and tell him about God. That's what Paul wants to do. Let me ask you this. If you were in Paul's shoes, would you care more about your release or more about telling somebody about God? That's a difficult question to really think about. Especially for me. Because I know my mind would be on Sarah and Micah and Leah. I would be pulled in that direction. And I might not make the decision Paul made. Paul's willing to stay in custody. He's willing to have his freedom stripped of him. Sorry about that. He's willing to have his freedom stripped of him just so he can tell Caesar the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, what happens with Felix is he keeps Paul detained for two years. Paul is under house arrest in Caesarea for two years. He's there so long that Felix gets supplanted as governor. They bring in another guy named Festus. Apparently they liked F names back then. Festus comes in as the new governor. But Festus in three days listens to Paul's case. And then he goes down to Jerusalem to hear from these these, uh, religious leaders to find out what their accusations are. So he kind of gets the ball moving. But Festus... Even though he's heard Paul's case, even though he's heard Paul's opponents, even though he's dealt with all these things, he doesn't release Paul. One thing I forgot to mention is that Felix kept Paul in prison because, and the text literally says this, he wanted to do the Jews a favor. What? To, you, he wanted to do the Jews a favor. That's, the, that's what the text says. And guess what? Festus does the same thing. We're told that he too wanted to do the Jews a favor, so he didn't release Paul right away. And that's when, in Acts chapter 25, verse 10 and 11, Paul specifically appeals to Caesar. And now, Festus can't do anything with Paul. He's got to get him to Caesar. Because as a Roman citizen, that is Paul's right. But Festus still has a problem. He can send Paul to Caesar, but he's got to have something to tell Caesar. That's his dilemma. He didn't know what charges to specify against Paul. He didn't, he didn't have charges that were worthy of an emperor visit. If he sent Paul to, 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 to the emperor and said, hey, guess what? I've got this guy that the Jews are saying one thing about and he's saying another and that's all I've got for you. Emperor ain't going to be too pleased with his time being wasted on that. If it's not even a death penalty case, why send him to the emperor? That's the challenge. And so he thinks he, Festus thinks he's found some luck because somebody shows up, a state official shows up, a guy named King Herod Agrippa II. Now, anytime you hear the name Herod in a name, you know there's a connection. Agrippa II is the great-grandson of the infamous Herod who tried to eliminate Jesus uh, back when he was a baby. Herod Agrippa II is not only Herod's great-grandson, but he is also the son of Herod Agrippa I, who killed the Apostle James back in Acts chapter 12. And though this gets a little bit more complicated, he is his uncle by his aunt's second marriage, if I'm remembering that correctly, was Herod Antipas, the one who got to uh, interview Jesus for his crucifixion. This 
this Herod Agrippa II, who's related to all these guys, comes to town and Festus consults with him about Paul's case, which is not surprising because Agrippa had been given legal jurisdiction over the temple. Rome gave him legal jurisdiction over Jewish affairs, essentially. And Agrippa wanted to hear from Paul. And that's going to bring us into the second big point I want to talk about. The first was about peacemaking and, and about uh, how, how Paul focused on that. But now I want you to notice what happens when Paul is examined by these two guys, Festus and Agrippa. As Paul lays out his case in Acts chapter 26, he presents his conversion story again. So in the book of Acts, we get three conversion stories about Paul. The first, the actual events of Acts chapter 9, his retelling of those events in Acts 22, and his retelling of those events in Acts chapter 24, I mean 26. He's appearing before Festus, and he's appearing before uh, Agrippa here. And I want you to notice how these two government officials react to Paul. Because we might react like them sometimes to the message of the gospel. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 24, after listening to Paul talk about his conversion and then talk about Christ, Festus interrupted him and said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Do you know what that means? Festus just told Paul he's crazy. But here's the thing. I don't really think Festus thought Paul was crazy. If he really thought Paul was crazy, I don't, then he wouldn't have presented this case to Herod Agrippa II. He wouldn't have some dignitary come in and listen to him. He wouldn't have prepared to send him to the emperor if he really thought Paul was crazy. I mean, who would want to be known as the provincial governor who authorized for a lunatic to be brought into the presence of the Roman emperor? I don't necessarily think that he really thought Paul was crazy. But I do think that maybe Festus interrupted Paul's presentation as a defense mechanism. I can't help but wonder if Festus interrupted as a way to escape this conversation. If Paul's words were getting to him. If what Paul was saying about Jesus was getting to him. And he didn't want to continue a conversation that might lead to a conviction or a conversation that might challenge his worldview, a, a conversation that might change his preconceptions. And maybe instead of continuing to listen, Festus just dismissed Paul as crazy. I think some in the world today respond that way to the gospel message. It's almost there. It's, it's going to prick their heart, and, they, and they're not, they don't want that. They're uncomfortable with that. And so they find any way out of the conversation. Have you ever felt that way when you were talking with someone about Christ? Maybe you've been that way. And instead of continuing on and, and allowing the Word of God to affect you that way, you found a way out. I wonder if that's what happened with Festus. And I wonder that because of what does happen to Agrippa. In contrast to Festus, Agrippa appeared to be somewhat curious about Christ. When he, uh, when he and Festus conversed the previous day, Festus had informed Agrippa about this judicial dilemma he faced with Paul. And as a result, Agrippa said, I would like to hear the man myself. He wanted to hear what Paul had to say about this Christ and notice what Agrippa had been told about Paul's case. In Acts chapter 25 and verse 19, Agrippa had been told that the Jews had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Agrippa wanted to know more about this. Now why would Agrippa want to listen to Paul? Agrippa can't change the outcome of Paul's case. Agrippa can't make any financial decisions. Agrippa can't set any legal precedents. At this point, 
Everything regarding Paul's case is in the hands of Caesar. So why would Agrippa want to listen to a case that he can't influence? I believe he wanted to listen to Paul because he was curious and his curiosity came from his knowledge of Judaism. In Acts 26 and verse 3, we're told that Agrippa is an expert in all customs and questions or controversies which have to do with the Jews. Now, Agrippa was a descendant of King Herod, if you remember. In fact, he was the last member of the Herodian dynasty. He had spent his entire life around Judaism. He was tasked with the responsibility of overseeing affairs related to Jewish, the Jewish temple. And because of this, he had intimate knowledge of Jewish faith. He was well-versed in Jewish traditions, practices, and beliefs, according to that statement, um, according to a statement by Paul referring to uh, him when he called him an expert in Jewish customs. He was well-versed in Jewish scholarly debates. That's what the word questions or controversies is referring to. And Paul called him an expert in this area. Later in this chapter, Acts chapter 26, Paul would ask Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then Paul immediately followed that up with the assertion, I know that you do. Paul indicated that Agrippa was well-versed in Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, that, that Agrippa knew prophecies. Maybe he knew Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and, and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Maybe, maybe he knew prophecies like that. Maybe he even knew of his great-grandfather's run-in with some eastern wise men who were looking for the Messiah half a century before and his effort to eliminate that child that they were searching for. Maybe he knew of his great-uncle's or his uncle's examination of a Galilean who was eventually crucified with a sign displayed above his head that read, The King of the Jews. My point is that Agrippa knew enough from his Jewish knowledge about Jesus to at least pique his curiosity into this one who was dead, but from whom Paul asserted to be alive. And if you follow that conversation that Paul has with Agrippa, there's this interesting statement, Acts chapter 26, In verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. That little interaction is the basis of a song we've seen called Almost Persuaded. Almost persuaded. Here's what stands out to me about this. As far as we know, Agrippa never became a Christian. He was almost, but not. You've heard the old adage, almost doesn't count except for in Horseshoes and what? Hand grenades. And so many Christians try to live almost, don't they? Maybe they made the decision to become a Christian, but they, they still have the almost mentality. This idea that almost doesn't count, we need to think about that for a moment. Because when it comes to becoming a Christian, yes, almost doesn't count. You're, you're not almost a Christian. You either are or you're not. But also think about this. Almost doesn't count. See, Kevin got me this new microphone. He bought me a new earpiece, and it's working really well, and I'm just trying to destroy it tonight. This one's on me. But almost, think about this. Almost sinless doesn't count. Just ask Adam and Eve who up until the time they ate the forbidden fruit were sinless, but that one sin gave, had some grave consequences to it. Almost worship doesn't count. Just ask Cain. 
He brought an offering just like Abel did, but his offering wasn't pleasing in the sight of God because of the intent of his heart. Almost worship doesn't count. Almost obedience doesn't count. Just ask King Saul. When he was told to annihilate the Amalekites, uh, he chose to keep their king alive and the best of their flocks for his people, but that's not what the Lord told him to do. Almost obedience doesn't count. Almost discipleship doesn't count. Think about the rich young ruler. He was obedient in every aspect of Mosaic law, but when Jesus said, there's one thing you lack, he went away sorrowful. Almost fellowship doesn't count. Just ask Peter, who in Galatians chapter 2 would only fellowship with Jewish Christians, and Paul had to call him out. Paul had to point out his sin because his fellowship was almost. Almost honesty doesn't count. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. Because they gave partial truth when they were providing their offering to the church. And they lied, ultimately, and the consequences were quite severe. Almost service doesn't count. Just ask the goats in the parable of the sheep and the goats. The sheep are rewarded because they fed, gave water, clothed, and visited those who were in need. And the goats were punished because they didn't. And the goats didn't even realize they hadn't done it. Almost faithful doesn't count. Just ask Peter who in Matthew 26 claimed he would never deny Jesus, claimed he would follow Jesus to his death, but just a few verses later, standing outside Jesus' trial, he denied him three times. The challenge I have as I reflect on Agrippa's almost situation, the question that always comes to my mind is, do we live with almost mentality as Christians? Because almost doesn't count. I'm going to really speed up here in the next five to ten minutes, the last bit of the book of Acts. There's just two chapters really left, but they all deal with Paul's transport. His transport from Caesarea to Rome. It was not an easy transport. They boarded a boat and they sailed up to uh, Asia Minor. And then down from Asia Minor, you can kind of see the route on the map. From down from Asia Minor, they went to Crete. You'll see that the we passages the passages that include the author, Luke, pick back up at the start of Acts chapter 27 and verse 1. So he's rejoined Paul for this voyage to Rome. They sail to Crete, and that's where things get interesting. They've had a difficult journey, a slow journey, and so Paul advises them, again, this intelligent guy, he advises them to harbor there for the winter. But the centurion who was in charge of him didn't listen to Paul, Centurion listened to the captain of the boat, the captain of the boat who believed they would be okay. They weren't. They set sail from Crete trying to get to Rome, and a massive storm rose up and pushed them off course, and they spent 14 days adrift at sea. That's not counting how much time they were still sailing. That's 14 days adrift, if I'm understanding that passage correctly. And in, in, a, in a beautiful irony, there's a point at which in the story, Paul has an I told you so moment. Don't you love I told you so moments? How many of you have ever capitalized on an I told you so moment? Raise your hands. Oh, we got a bunch of liars in here. I said almost honesty doesn't count. If you're married, you've capitalized on an I told you so statement. I know that. Well, Holly really liked that. <laughs> so, Paul has an I told you so moment. If you look, uh, let me see if I can find that passage again. Verse 21 of Acts 27. They had been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. But here's where Paul's different than you and I. When we have an I told you so moment, we like to stand there all proud, puffy chest, and I told you so. And we just, we just want to bathe in that for a little bit. Paul instantly says, you should have listened to me. But he's saying that to set them up for what comes next. You should have listened to me then, so I want you to listen to me now. And look at what he says. Acts chapter 27, verse 21, the last half. Men, you should have listened to me. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. 
For this very night there stood before me an angel of, the, of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and be gold. God has granted you all those who sell with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, that we must run aground on some island. Paul says, I told you so. But his reason for saying that is, now listen to me. I'm going to get you out of this. I know what's going to happen. If you follow my lead, we'll all get out of this. Paul was humble even when he said, I told you so. I'm not. And what Paul does here in this last two chapters of Acts is he seizes seizes another opportunity. He's in just a horrible situation. Been in prison for years, lost his freedoms. He's on his way to Rome, which is what he wants, but he's, he's forced to sell against his own prophetic advice. He's caught in a hurricane-like storm for several days that was so ferocious, the text says the sun and stars were blocked, unable to be seen during that time. And apparently, they didn't eat for several days, possibly because they couldn't keep any food down. I don't know. He was shipwrecked by the end of this story, forced to swim or float onto a nearby island. That's the island of Malta. When he gets on the island, you think, okay, Lord got me through this. Maybe things will calm down now. No. First thing that happens to him on the island, he gets bit by a snake. If this is me, if I'm Paul, I'm looking up to heaven saying, what, Lord, are you doing to me? Here I've been obedient to your will all these years. I've been out there campaigning for you and sharing the gospel for you. I'm willing to stay in prison and go to Rome so that I can speak to the, the most powerful man on the planet on your behalf. And now you put me on a ship that broke down and, with some very incompetent sailors. And, and then I land on this island. I don't know where I am. And the first thing you're going to do is throw a snake at me. Come on, God. That would be my mentality. Again, I'm not Paul. But what does Paul do? I love this because I hate snakes. If you haven't figured it out, if, if I haven't mentioned it before, I hate snakes. I believe I have a God-given right to kill snakes because we're supposed to crush their head, right? But Paul gets bit by a snake and shakes it off. Is there anything more manly than that? Get bit by a snake and just toss it into the fire? I bet James Howard does that. I mean, Paul! And then what happens? That community is so impressed by this snake bite shaking off thing, they'll hear Paul on anything. He has this wonderful opportunity now. He had it on the boat. On the boat, he had this opportunity to talk about his God, to talk to those sailors about his God. It was that storm that he tried to avoid. By, by suggesting that they winter back there in Crete, that storm gave him an opportunity to preach, to break bread, to give thanks to God, to, that, the, to those pagan sailors. And then he gets on this island and that snake, that snake bites him. And, and he didn't anticipate that. He didn't want that. But he comes the, the, the means through which he can meet the most powerful man on the island, heal that man's father, and then heal many residents of the island and share the good news with them. Every time Paul faced a difficult circumstance, Philippian jail, prison in Caesarea, a shipwreck, a snake bite, every difficult circumstance, he turned it into a pulpit. He used it to point towards God. I started this lesson off talking about opportunities. When Paul went to Jerusalem and found out about this issue, this Jewish-Gentile issue that he was the centerpiece of, he used it as an opportunity to proclaim the unity of the brotherhood. When he was in prison for two years in Caesarea, he used every act, interaction with government officials as an opportunity to talk about Christ. When he was on that boat and on that island, he used those circumstances as an opportunity to show love, 
to show mercy, and to proclaim God. So the big takeaway I want you to have tonight is this. Do you seize your opportunities the way Paul did? Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul said, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. To me, that's the message of Paul's life, particularly in these last seven and a half chapters during his voyage from Jerusalem to Rome. And you know what he's going to do in Rome? First thing he's going to do, we're not even getting into that. He's going to call the Jewish leaders together, meet with them. He's going to set up in his own house. He's under house arrest. He's going to start meeting with people. He's going to start talking with the guards who are entrusted to him. He's going to be sharing the gospel with anybody he had contact with. And that's why at the end of his life, he could boldly proclaim, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Because no matter what circumstance he faced, he used it as an opportunity for the Lord. The challenge is for us to do the same. Let's close out with a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Our Heavenly Father, we are are, are grateful uh, for this night of study. We thank you for the the opportunity we've had this week uh, with Vacation Bible School to to study as as a class, to uh, interact with these children and give them the opportunity to hear uh, messages from your word. And Lord, we're thankful for all the adults who have given up their time and their energy to make this thing happen. Lord, we are are grateful for the life of Paul, and uh, he's so easy to admire because of how well he he conducted himself and how he used his time. And Lord, we pray that we can be just as uh, dedicated to seizing opportunity as him. Help us to notice the opportunities when you give them to us and help us to use them to your glory. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.